This morning's reading comes from Romans 10, verses 21 to 11, verse 36. But of Israel, he says, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, and they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespasses, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch them, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as fruits, first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will see, say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. 
For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For for, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Easton read for us the, the final statement of Romans 10. All day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You have to picture the fledgling church which had received the gospel from Jewish Christian missionaries. They were devoted to the teachings of Jewish apostles, had been attending a predominantly Jewish church, but were now seeing that the majority of the people of Israel were not only rejecting Jesus, rejecting the gospel, but were also persecuting and beginning to cause persecution for the church, which was at this time, rapidly becoming dominated by the influx of Gentile believers. So there was a church that was all Jewish at one point, had become a a, a church of mixed ethnicity, which was fantastic, but there were so few Jews being saved that they weren't even replacing their own numbers uh, as they died. And Paul has spent much of Romans establishing that God has chosen to elect Gentile believers to receive all of the very same promises given to Abraham and his faithful offspring. But this sparks the question, what about the Jews? Weren't they God's chosen people? And look what happened to them. They are dying in their sin without believing and obeying the gospel. There are even fewer of them in the church now than there once was. As apostle to the Gentiles, Paul may have been perceived as having rejected his Jewish roots. In fact, some may have even thought that God had rejected the stiff-necked and rebellious people he had chosen for himself. And this, this last thought would become more and more common a couple of decades later or so when Jerusalem was destroyed and, and the last vestiges of theocratic Israel was completely annihilated. They would say, oh, look, look what happened. God has rejected his people. He's divorced them from the covenant. So has God rejected his people? By no means. But what then happened to his promises and election? This brings us back to the beginning of this excursus in chapter 9, verses 6 to 7a. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. See, in Romans 11, Paul is still answering this question Has the word of God failed? By no means. So has God rejected his people? By no means. And from there, from Romans 9, we have seen that God was always, all along, throughout the Old Testament, choosing who he would show mercy to, even from among Abraham's descendants. Some of them were elect recipients of his covenant and promises through no merit of their own. Others not only remained rebellious against God, but were increasingly hardened by God in judgment. 
And so chapter 11 is the final part of the excursus begun in chapter 9, defending the righteousness of God and the validity of his promises by focusing more directly on God's ultimate plan for ethnic Israel. And so this is, has an application just in the sense of what's God doing with Israel. We might have that question. And although we need to recognize that what Paul's saying here is, is not only true of the Jewish people, it also gives us an example of the faithful character of God and his promises which can be relied upon by all believers today. So there's two things. There's this very practical aspect of what should Christians think about Israel? That's dealt with quite extensively here in Romans 9 through 11. But its primary purpose here in Romans is to tell us you can trust God. In addition, chapter 11 also brings the sky-high theology of Romans chapter 9 and 10 down to ground level. Applying the, the highfalutin ideas that Paul has taught up until now to a specific situation. And in, in taking these, these high-flying theological truths and applying them to a specific situation, he uses even more specific language, such as chosen by grace, so that we can know beyond doubt that we have understood what he has said. And so chapter 11, the whole thing is interconnected, and it really should be one sermon, but I'm not for the sake of time. I'm going to divide it into two. It focuses on, on two related main points, uh, which I've separated. The first is, can any Jews be saved? Romans 11, 1 to 10. This is the main point it handles. And, and secondly, in 11 to 32, can any more Jews be saved? This is what Paul's handling here. So we begin Romans 11, 1 and 2a. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You see, after the negative assessment of the previous chapters, it would be natural to conclude that God had rejected Israel. And if you were to read much of Romans and ignore Romans 11, you might today think that God has rejected Israel. By no means, Paul says. Paul's gospel and much of Romans established that God was calling Gentiles to be his people without having to observe the law and the traditional Jewish way of life. And as apostle to the Gentiles, some, as I said, were even concluding that Paul was now anti-Jew. Hasn't he just said, Romans 9, 30 to 31, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it by faith, but that for Israel, because they pursued the law for righteousness, the gospel was a stumbling block and an offense? The conclusion from chapter 10 is that, that a major reason why Israel as a whole has not obeyed the gospel was her own obstinacy. And Israel's refusal to acknowledge Jesus Christ, the culmination of all salvation history and the sole mediator of God's righteousness, it would seem to mean that she could no longer claim to be God's people. Not, Paul, not so, Paul says. By no means. 
His answer is that not all those who were a part of ethnic Israel were part of the remnant, the true people of God. And then he presents himself, a Jewish Christian, as living evidence that God has not abandoned his people. Paul, as a Jewish Christian, is living proof to the contrary. So God has not rejected Israel. Look, I'm an Israelite, and I'm saved. That's, that's Paul's argument. He, he's not only an Israelite, but he comes by it biologically. You see, many Israelites, people don't often understand, were grafted into Israel from other nations throughout the Old Testament. But Paul was a direct descendant of Abraham's great-grandson, Benjamin. He may also have included this distinction because Benjamin was one of the very few tribes left in his day that could actually trace their ancestry all the way back because of the Babylonian exile. So most people who called themselves Israelites called themselves Jewish. Even to this day, most people that call themselves Jewish are are guessing to some extent because they they don't have an actual lineage. But Paul had this. As a Benjaminite, he could prove that he was a genuine Israelite. And so Paul is exhibit A, that God has not abandoned his people. But there is within ethnic Israel some whom God has determined in advance to save, to overcome their rebelliousness and obstinacy. Paul was an Israelite through and through. And yet who was more rebellious than Paul? Who set out to destroy the Messiah and his people more than did Paul? And yet God intervened in his life on the Damascus road, giving him the vision of the risen Christ, and his life was utterly changed. Like you and I, Paul was not more likely to choose faith and obedience. He was the least likely convert from the least likely people. God makes this clear throughout the scriptures that Israel was not chosen for their righteousness, but for their weakness, for their smallness, for their hard-heartedness. This is God's MO. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And so all through the selection process of God choosing who he will save, it is for his glory. He chooses the lesser, the younger brother, the weaker vessel. No one was less likely to choose God than Paul, except perhaps me. We give thanks to God that he's in the business of saving disobedient and contrary people, those who are hard-hearted and impenitent. God does not reject his disobedient and contrary people. If he did, there would be no people of God. He does not, verse 2, reject his people whom he foreknew. Now this statement makes it clear that when Paul has been talking earlier about God already knowing someone, 
or foreknowing, previously knowing. He isn't merely saying that God had this mystical foreknowledge looking down the quarters of time to see what they would choose, but that God had set his covenant love upon certain people he selected. He's talking about Israel, Israel whom God foreknew. And throughout the scriptures, this is the language of relationship with God. In Amos 3, 2, he says of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Which is not to say that all the other nations were a total surprise, but that God foreknew Israel. It's to say he, he chose special relationship. He chose to know them intimately. It is the language of God's choosing. He says of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God isn't saying something here that's generally true of all people. Although God does know all things and certainly does know all people before they're born in the sense of of his knowledge. But why would he say something that's redundant like that? He, He could just say, well, I know everything. But he says, before you were born, I knew you. Before you were born, I appointed you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. So he's saying something that isn't generally true of all people. It's to say that God chose a special relationship with Jeremiah, which separated him from the general population. So when God is said to know or have known a people, it is always speaking of this special chosen relationship. So in 1 Corinthians 8.3, Paul writes, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, this is not to say that God had no idea anyone existed until the moment they loved him. But to say that anyone who loves God is already known by him relationally. You see how it has to be interpreted that way to make any sense at all. So in Romans 8.29, Paul has already told us that those whom God foreknew relationally, he predestined to be made like Christ. And now he makes it clear that this includes those among Israel whom God foreknew relationally. He has not rejected the ones that he has already known, the ones he has chosen. How could God reject a people whom he, in a gracious act of choice, had made his own? Human sinfulness and disobedience cannot cancel his pledged word. So Paul has already written in Romans 3, 3 and 4, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Now Paul's theology, as always, is drawn from the Old Testament. And his wording closely reflects Psalm 94.14 and 1 Samuel 12.22. Psalm 94 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. I mean, there's a group of people out there, I think they're smaller and smaller all the time, but they believe that God rejected Israel. It's just, you can't do that, you can't believe that in the Bible. It's just, you can't. God does not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. You, you, You just can't go there. You can't say, oh yeah, this thing that God repeats over and over again in the Bible, we don't believe that. We believe instead that he did this other thing that the Bible never says. That's just foolishness. 1 Samuel 12, 22 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
Now, in the context of this last passage, the people have just rejected God's rule, and they're in rebellion, and Samuel lists the sins of Israel before them, and then reassures them that God will not forsake them despite their unfaithfulness. God has not rejected those on whom he has set his covenant love. Such an idea is unthinkable and indeed impossible. Lamentations 3, 23 one of my favorite verses in the Bible, says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This word we translate steadfast love is, is the Hebrew word hesed, which means uh, essentially covenant faithfulness, covenant love. This is not the way in which the, God loves the whole world and does kind things and loves his enemies. This is the covenant love he places on his chosen people, those he has foreknown. But what goes against Jewish expectation in Paul's day is the fact that not all ethnic Jews are in this category of foreknown by God. In fact, Paul teaches that those whom God foreknew represents only a small portion of ethnic Israel. And and to illustrate this and show that he's on the right track, Paul turns back to Scripture yet again, this time focusing on an event in the life of Elijah seen in 1 Kings 19, 1-18. He says, Romans 11, 2b-4, Do you not know what the Scriptures say? The Scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Under the influence of Jezebel, the, the literal original one from whence all the others are named, this is the, the actual first Jezebel, uh, King Ahab led Israel to almost complete apostasy, destroying the places where people worshipped the true God and slaughtered his prophets. Today it would be like having the entire visible church wiped out, every church demolished, every confessing Christian killed, And Elijah fled into the wilderness to escape Jezebel's soldiers and cried out to God. From his perspective, the entire nation had given their devotion to Baal instead of Yahweh. And from the deplorable state of affairs in Israel, Elijah inferred that he was the only follower of Yahweh, the the true God, left. But Elijah had it all wrong. God had preserved 7,000 men, and one can assume women and children with them, who had refused to worship Baal. God had protected them, verse 4. I have kept them for myself. The similarity in Paul's day was that most of Israel was apostate, having refused to acknowledge Jesus as the resurrected Lord. But even though the majority have disregarded the gospel, God has not abandoned ethnic Israel, but he has maintained a remnant of believing Jews by reserving them for himself, by his electing grace. As with 1 Kings, the existence of a remnant is not only evidence of God's present faithfulness to Israel, but it is also a pledge for hope for the future of the people. 
Now, this gets into the, the second point of Romans, which, uh, as I said, presents a unified message, uh, and we'll deal with next week. But, but the current faithfulness of God in preserving a remnant also implies that the future promises of God will be fulfilled in, in an even more dramatic way. This is, this is a hope. There's still a remnant alive. There are survivors. And, and where there's survivors, the, the nation can continue. So verse 5, Romans eleven five. 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The rebellion of Israel in Elijah's time could not invalidate God's faithfulness and promises to Israel. So in Paul's day, God had once again preserved a remnant among ethnic Israel. He had graciously chosen some Jews because of his grace. We know from Acts 2 and elsewhere that there were a number of Jews who, like Paul, embraced the gospel message and gave their allegiance to Jesus the Messiah. We also know that among the remnant were Jewish followers of Jesus who lived in Rome, who Paul is writing to now. And all of this proved that God had not rejected his people. And this remnant had not come into being as a result of their greater wisdom or nobility, their free will or their spiritual perception, but as the result of God's gracious election. Now, Paul has already spoken at length about this in relation to God's choice of Jacob and not Esau. The text made it clear that election is independent of the good or bad done by the one chosen. God's sovereign choice is determinative. But, but the words Paul uses here leave even less maneuvering room for those who doubt his message. He says, they are chosen by grace. That is to say that grace is the deciding factor, not human will or exertion, not a natural inclination towards faith or believing, not the circumstances of one's birth. To say that they are chosen by grace eliminates any possibility that they were chosen by foreknowledge, which the Bible never says. They were chosen by grace, God's grace alone. Paul drives home one of the central points here with the emphatic reference to grace over and over again. The only reason some Jews believe is that God has graciously and mercifully chosen them to be part of his people. Now, many people worry that God choosing some and not all would be unjust but this idea overlooks the fact that election is always gracious. No one deserves to be chosen. No one deserves to be elected. And thus, the election of any is a merciful gift of God that cannot be claimed as some sort of human right. It is grace. For Paul, the purity of grace is bound up with the conviction that God elects apart from any work on the part of human beings, anything they might do. Because anything added to grace negates grace. It is abundantly clear that the remnant of elect Jews were chosen by grace alone. Not because they were somehow more acceptable to God. God saved them because of his grace 
in exactly the same way as he was saving Gentiles. Now, church, we have to defend this doctrine of unconditional election so vigorously because the denial compromises the biblical gospel. That justification, sorry, is by grace alone through faith alone. And so the Protestant Reformation was propelled by people coming to believe in and preach passionately this doctrine. This is what caused them to say, no, this is what the Bible says about salvation. This is the truth, not what the Catholics are saying about salvation. This is why there was this schism. This is why they had to go and do their own thing because they said the Bible teaches salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And it is so disheartening to see how many modern so-called Protestant denominations have gone right back to Catholic soteriology, believing what Catholics believe about salvation. And so we have to defend this doctrine. People want to dispute the Reformed view of salvation by grace alone to add human choice to the formula, but Romans 11.5 is unassailable. There can be no unraveling of the statement chosen by grace. What then, verse 7? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The majority of ethnic Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Here, Paul draws on everything he has said throughout Romans 9 and 10. He makes it clear that God has saved those among Israel who were elect, while the rest were hardened. Because although they were seeking salvation, they were seeking it in the wrong way. Because, Romans 9.32, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They had, Romans 10, 2-3, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, namely righteousness. Verse 7, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. This seems to imply that Israel's continuing unbelief is, in part, a result of God's actions, which is made clear by the quotations that follow. Romans eleven eight, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Paul here divides Israel into two groups, a remnant enjoying the blessings of salvation and existing by virtue of God's gracious election, chosen by grace, and the rest hardened by God into spiritual stubbornness. No, God has not rejected Israel as a whole since he has chosen a remnant, but this does not mean that he has not rejected those who remain in stubborn rebellion. Now, this concept of hardening is a difficult one. But we should see that Paul doesn't think such hardening exempts Israel from responsibility. 
and certainly doesn't believe that humans are mere puppets or robots if God hardens hearts. He expresses God's hardening of hearts as God's justice for those who are already rebellious and unrepentant sinners. Deciding to confine some people into the sin in which they have chosen for themselves and, and to give them a push even further than their natural senses would have allowed. And despite the difficulty of receiving this message from God through his word, the Bible, Paul, the, the quotations Paul uses from the Old Testament leave no doubt that he is saying exactly this, that God is actively the agent of this hardening. And I want to show you this because it, it is actually a little bit mind-blowing. Again, again, Paul quotes so extensively of the Old Testament to show that he's not teaching anything new. He's teaching exactly what the Bible has taught all the way along. And I'm going to give you a spoiler of the end. The whole thing we take from this is Paul so extensively talks about what God promised to do through the Old Testament, shows that it has already all come to pass so that you can know that everything he's promised to you will come to pass. This is the, the application this morning. The application is you can believe the word of God, but look how detailed it is. Look how every aspect has been meticulously cared for by God so that everything that he said through his prophets would happen it exactly happens just so. And so Paul quotes from the Old Testament, following a Jewish precedence in using each of the three main divisions of the Hebrew Scriptures. So he, he shows that both the, the law teaches this in, in Deuteronomy 29.4, the prophets taught this, Isaiah 29.10, and the writings, Psalm 69.22-23. This is the unified message of the whole Old Testament, is what Paul's saying here. What is interesting is that Paul wants to make it even more clear that this is the active work of God in hardening. So he actually takes what's said in Deuteronomy 29 and then inserts Isaiah 29, which is even a little bit more directly saying what he wants to say. So in Deuteronomy 29, Moses rehearses and foretells the history of Israel, prophesying that they will face exile for their sin. And then will be delivered only in the future when God gives them new hearts. At the very beginning, though, Moses acknowledges that they were incapable of obeying because Deuteronomy 29.4, to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now notice in, in Deuteronomy 29.4, this is passive. In a sense, it's, it's stated negatively. God has not given you a new heart. God has not given you eyes to see and ears to hear. But Paul says something a little bit more active, doesn't he? Something he states positively, the active work of God. What's interesting here is that Paul wants to make it even more clear that this is an active work of God in hardening, not just something that he is passively allowing. So he also includes Isaiah 29.10, which says... The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, or stupor, has closed your eyes and covered your heads. And so Paul takes these two passages, puts them together, and he is saying that God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. 
He's not adding to scripture. He's adding these scriptures together to set this point of God's active work in hardening his people. He then quotes from Psalm 69, 22 to 23, where David prays that God would punish his enemies. Listen to this. David's prayer against his enemies. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they're at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Uh, David was very talented at coming up with creative ways for God to deal with his enemies. He, he does this all the time in Psalms. He has these fantastic and creative ways that God should deal with his enemies. And, and in fact, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. So he had this Holy Spirit-inspired creativity for what God should do to his enemies. The language of the table becoming a trap suggests that the thing looked to for security, the thing looked to for provision, would become the means of their destruction. David's inspired and imaginative wish for his enemies is that their provision and security would become their devastation, and that their peace would lead to their ruin, that their light would be darkness, and that they would be afraid always and continually. Now, according to Paul, the prayer uttered by David has been fulfilled among Jews who did not acknowledge Jesus as Lord. That which should have been their salvation, the Jewish Messiah, the thing that should have been their salvation was the very means of their fall. The message which should have brought them peace was instead to them foolishness and an offense. The rock of ages, Jesus, Messiah, became to them only a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In, in his quotation, Paul adds to David's words, inserting that their table would be a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Part of the reason why so few in Israel have believed the gospel in Paul's day was because God had given them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear. And he had caused their eyes to be darkened so that they cannot see in retribution for their rebellion. But this is only the first part of the message of Romans 11. The existence of an elect remnant is proof that God has not rejected all Israel on the basis of their rebellion. Some were, but others were saved by grace. And this, as with everything Paul says through Romans, places all believers, Jew and Gentile alike, under the same grace. The remainder of Romans 11 begins to outline the future hope for ethnic Israel and the completion of the church, which will include people from every nation. If God has hardened them now, it is for his purposes, which are always good and even better than we can imagine. But most importantly, what, what you're meant to see here, it, with the densest quotation of the Old Testament in the entire Bible, Paul wants to show us the hope we have in what God has spoken through his prophets. Because every minute detail has come to pass. God's sure and sovereign plan is secure. Did not God say over and over again that he would harden Israel's hearts in retribution for their idolatry? He did. 
Didn't he say that the means of salvation, the saving Messiah, would be rejected by his own people as he would become to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense? Yes, those were the words of God in the Old Testament. And didn't he say that he would make them jealous by saving a people who are not a people, Gentile believers, calling them his sons and daughters? Well, yes, indeed. God said that over and over again through the law and the prophets and the writings. This is the purpose of the long excursus into predestination and divine election in Romans 9 to 11. To build your faith. What else has God said? There is more in the prophetic canon about Israel and the final result of all these things God has promised, which Paul will show us in the remainder of chapter 11. But what else has God promised us? If God has directed the path of nations by his sovereign decree and meticulous providence, how much more will he be able to keep his promises to you? This is to build our faith, church. These chapters come directly on the heels of the most exciting, promise-filled chapters in the Bible to build our faith, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and softened hearts to receive what God has granted. I want to leave you with reading excerpts from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Guys, we can trust this. If you live according to the flesh, will you die? You better believe it. If you live according to the Spirit, will you live? Yes. The Spirit, sorry, verse 15, no, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jump down to verse 28. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? 
or love of Christ, sorry, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, we can believe these promises. It doesn't take a leap of faith. It takes faith, God-given faith, to see that everything God has promised throughout the Old Testament has come to pass. And as he makes these promises to us, we know they are ours, they are secure. They're not dependent on whether your parents did the right thing or not. They're not dependent on whether your spouse does the right thing or not. They're not even dependent on if you always do the right thing or not. They're dependent on God who has promised these things and will cause them to come to pass. Let God be true, though every man be called a liar. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is so patient with us. There are some here, I'm sure, who feel that Romans 9 to 11 is a very, very long passage, probably a little bit too long. But God, you are patient with us because we are slow to learn, quick to forget. Show us your glory. Lord, may it become part of our heart feeling towards you, part of our, our position before you to, that we recognize that you are meticulously sovereign making sure that everything that you promise comes to pass. And there are so few promises with a caveat. There are some, but there are so few. You are bringing about your purposes. And this is a great hope to us if we love you and a great fear to us if we do not. Lord, I pray that you would turn us to repentance by the fear of God. And Lord, may we be satisfied in you as we recognize your sovereign control in all things. We give you praise. Amen.